You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, visit simplify.us. No simplified funds will be discussed during this podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, I've got Chase Taylor. Chase is the founder of Pinecode Macro. He's based in DC. So Chase, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You know, it's awesome to have you. Um, you know, you, you were sort of, you know, sort of one of the best, you know, people, especially on FinTwit when it comes to macro. And, uh, you know, it's, it is amazing to get you back on the podcast and uh, to share some of your thoughts as well. So, yeah, it's awesome to be back. And I'm just glad somebody recognizes I still do macro and not just energy. So that's good. Yep. So, no, so uh, Chase, uh, you know, before we, uh, before we uh, get started, uh, you know, even uh, during our last interview, you, you sort of talked about your background. Could you just give us a quick synopsis of your background and what you do at Pinecone Macro, you know, before we get started? Yeah, sure. So my background is mostly uh, in the military. I've been, I've been involved in markets since 2008. Uh, not good at it until about five years ago. But uh, yeah, but before that, uh, I worked on B-1 bombers in the Air Force. I did some geospatial intelligence work. Uh, and some uh, acquisition work, worked at some uh, government labs and some intelligence agencies along the way. Yep, yep. And do you think your def- uh, do you think sort of your background in defense uh, has influenced the way you invest, or you know, are there any lessons that you learned while you, know, you were uh, you were in the military that you've sort of applied to investing? Yeah, there's definitely some some frameworks. Uh, you know, one of the examples I like to use is in intelligence like you you have to kind of get get to know your own biases and and really fight against them because you know lives are on the line if you have a bias that kind of like gets if, if you have a bias that creeps too much into your analysis you, like you can cost people's lives and and we all have biases like we all feel them we all you know suffer from the impacts of them but in, in that line of work you have to understand them and you know like a red team against your own biases on a daily basis to do your job well and to, and to, you know, keep people alive. So that, that was, that was a big help and as well as just like some basic frameworks that, that are used for, you know, understanding the difference between fact and fiction, essentially. Absolutely. And, you know, controlling your biases is sort of essential, you know, in markets and, you know, going forward, you know, just wanted to start off by, you know, talking about the one thing that you've sort of really become well-known for on Twitter and that's energy. And so, it's been sort of a home run trade, uh, you know, clearly. So could you sort of talk about, you know, number one, how you found the energy opportunity and, you know, what, so what, what actually went into the analysis, you know, before you took the trade and uh, going forward, you know, going forward, what's sort of the risk reward from here and, uh, you know, how are you thinking about it right now? Sure. Yeah. The risk rewards definitely changed a lot, uh, yep. but so just kind of how, how it got there. So I, I like to find things that are very much unloved. This, that's like a, a really good starting point for me. Things that are unloved and things that are like just performing performing badly. Mm-hmm. So obviously that was the entire energy space a couple of years ago. So it, it kind of attracted my 
my attention. I like to find things that are in that position, but you know, you can do some fundamental homework on and realize everyone's extrapolating that to keep, keep happening that way, but it's not going to keep happening that way after you have done your own deep dive into like, what's the real drivers. So the basic way of looking at that as a capital cycle framework, this is just kind of a, a, a cycle where capital, you know, chases after high returns and then it ruins those returns. So if you think about oil, you know, pre 2014 oil was expensive. So you had a ton of investment. You had a lot of people chasing after it. Sentiment was high. You had the shale boom. Everyone was, you know, lining up to give shale money to, to just, you know, burn up and, and put it in the ground and, and overspend. Uh, so you had that situation, which obviously leads to the situation where you have a price collapse and then you have an investment collapse. So really since 2014, the oil market has been just really energy market has been just completely broken when it comes to investment. There hasn't been enough investment. There hasn't been enough, um, you know, looking for new oil and eventually that leads to much higher prices to, you have to have to get a capital to come back to, you know, expand uh, production in the future. So we're kind of at that point where finally the market, you know, realize, realizes the fact that we don't have enough, enough energy and that we have to have a lot more investment in the future. And so far we're not getting much investment response, especially, you know, in public markets and especially in say non-state owned, uh, you know, players. And that will, as long as, long as that's the case, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to have high prices, but, you know, eventually you get, you get a capital response, you get a bunch of CapEx, you get a bunch of uh, increases in capacity and production. And that, and that's what, you know, flips the entire market back on the other way. And that, that happens whenever you get really high prices. So when we get back above a hundred dollars a barrel, you know, later this year, next year, uh, people will come back as much as they want to, you know, keep giving dividends out and everything. At some point, oil, oil equities go a lot higher. And then, you know, these CEOs are all of a sudden, you know, their, their incentive is to go get more oil instead of just hand cash out to their investors. But you could argue for a time period, there's going to be a lot of cash handouts, a lot of, a lot of buybacks, a lot of debt being paid down because there's, there's at the moment, if, if I'm an oil CEO, especially a public one, there's really not much incentive for me to go expand production because no one is, no one's reflecting any of this reality in, in the share prices of oil yet. Really you see down the front end of, of, you know, the futures curve, not in the back end and not, not in oil equities yet. So there, there's definitely still runway and it's not like you flip a switch on oil production and it all comes rushing back in, in two months. So you have the runway of the timing to bring all that back uh, onto production, but you also have, you know, the, the, the timing to wait to actually get this CapEx boom, which eventually comes. Yep. And you know, how did you, so how, how did you go about sort of expressing, you know, this trade? So I remember you probably, you talked a little bit about coal equities as well. Coal is sort of a similar trade in terms of the cap, uh, the CapEx cycle. Did, did you also play that through futures or how, how did you go about constructing that position? Yeah. So as a, as a macro strategist and a person that's bad at single stock investment, I, I, I just gravitate more towards uh, futures than, than equity just in general. Uh, so it was very futures focused for me, but I, I definitely played it through equity because I mean, it's just, it, it was so undervalued. And for me, that was a mixture of uh, kind of breaking it up between really low risk uh, equities and then some really high risk ones. So I, I went to low risk ones in case, you know, oil went back down and, or stayed, you know, sub 50 somehow that, I, you know, whatever I own probably wasn't going to go bankrupt. So there were, there were 
actually oil companies during the pandemic like crisis where oil went negative that had zero debt and so naturally i'm gonna go buy something like that that's is reasonably well run had zero debt so it's like a, a big cushion there and but also wanted to go get some stuff that eh, is probably gonna go bankrupt or if it you know if it narrowly escapes bankruptcy it'll get re-rated at a really aggressive clip so yeah you mentioned coal like th that was the reason I, I focused on peabody was it was priced to literally go out of business and i didn't think it would and i knew if i was right you know the re-rating it would outperform all of its peers that weren't priced for you know bank imminent bankruptcy um so th there's there's a place for that but but it's obviously it's much higher risk than just buying some futures or or buying you know an equity that doesn't have a bunch of debt so for me it's, it's definitely a mixture of, of futures and equities and then even within the equities kind of some safe some safe stuff uh, and some more aggressive stuff. Yep. Indeed, does it scare you that the trades? So, you know, if you go on FinTwit, you know, everyone's talking about oil and energy and coal, and especially in Europe, uh, where there's sort of a massive shortage and pressure to the roof. So, do you fear that's become crowded? It's sort of become a crowded trade and, you know, public sentiment starting to uh, peak slowly, or do you think there's still a lot of runway left? Um, yeah. So, the funny thing about this is, so I don't, I, the sentiment, it, it does like it, it's it's like you know it's, a, it's definitely a yellow light to me i don't i don't like seeing you know economist covers with natural gas on it when you know when i started investing in natural gas I, no one cared everyone just extrapolated it to be two dollars for the rest of history uh but positioning interestingly i mean speculators are net short natural gas uh they're not very long oil so you know, the, these rates are still unloved and it's not like institutions are like, you know what, maybe we should buy coal equities now. You're like, you're not going to see that. So from a pure positioning standpoint, I have no worries. In fact, I'm very encouraged that the bull, bull market kind of continues, but from a, a sentiment perspective, it, it's a little, it's definitely a yellow light right now because it is getting a, a bit of attention. There's a lot of articles. The energy crisis angle has brought a lot of attention to, you know, kind of mar markets that people normally don't pay attention to because when the lights go out people really kind of pay attention to things naturally uh so yeah sentiment a little concerning but and, and if i didn't think we were gonna have a cold winter i would be much more concerned about gas and coal because they, they kind of need that at this point to to keep moving higher uh whereas oil i just i just think the runway for oil is is, is significant um and when it comes to the natural gas market though I, something that maybe doesn't get enough attention here in the u.s is just the role that exports are playing but for so long we didn't really export you know natural gas and now we do and that's really changing the game so yes we produce more you know than we did a few years ago but we export so much that it kind of remains a tight domestic market and you know the arbitrage but for prices between us and then europe and or uk or or asia it's a giant gap in price so the there's so much arbitrage opportunity there you can kind of see what happens like all these prices have to kind of meet in the middle at some point to make that gas go from a regional market to a more global market so that's sort of like a natural just tailwind for u.s natural gas prices and you know kind of medium term call it yeah but you know as you mentioned this starts sort of institutions in the sense of you know endowments a lot of these foundations they've started to i guess divest from um from, from energy investment. I guess that's sort of encouraging to your thesis because you sort of don't have all these, uh, in, in terms of sentiment, I guess that's sort of the uh, anti-sentiment um, considering that 
a lot of them uh, a lot of them have started jumping on the ESG train. And you know, speaking of ESG, you know, the other uh, the other sort of commodity that yeah, you've big, uh, that you've been big on is uranium. And could you just number one talk about the macro for uranium as well as uh, you know how how you're actually thinking of playing it? Is it is it again through futures? Considering that you know futures on uranium are actually far more liquid compared to something like oil. So yeah, I wish I wish I could trade uranium futures. I would very much like that, but yeah, they don't they don't move. Like I've I was told that I could see that on the screen, and but I a few years ago I still tried it. You know, I I put in an order and it just it just nothing happens. So yeah, I, I hope we, you know, I get to see a day where there's a liquid uranium futures market that I can trade, but because the, the leverage just make, makes futures just really nice to trade. But yeah, for me, that that's all about equities. And I know a lot of people really are kind of left, left the uranium mining space and are focusing on the, like the physical trust. For me, I, I, I prefer to be in, in the actual miners personally. Um, but as far as the actual story goes, I, I think I think what's happening with this energy crisis, and again, I think it'll get worse this winter, is it's changing the, the kind of public relations, the narrative around around uranium. So while everyone's focused on the, the Pac-Man of of the of the Sprott Trust, I'm focused on the fact that we're going to see a lot of significant players, both politically, you know, and and otherwise go from not being a fan of natural or excuse me of, of uranium to being a fan of nuclear because you get to the point for one thing everyone's like oh it's too expensive it's too, too expensive it's too dangerous yep. we don't know how to store the waste well it's not expensive whenever natural gas is at a 200 dollars a barrel of oil equivalent it, it's actually dramatic it's super cheap the fact that it doesn't turn itself off you know whenever it gets cloudy or the wind stops or the water stops flowing it, that becomes like a really big deal all you know and it's all these things we take for granted about certain forms of energy, whenever you have a crisis, become clear. So things we have not, haven't had to worry about for a long time, all of a sudden are giant risks. So I think, you know, green parties throughout Europe, or maybe, you know, you look at like Taiwan or um, different places that have kind of been, you know, anti-nuclear in some ways, or, or trying to like draw down their nuclear, even France, France is kind of the champion of nuclear, and they were going to draw down, you know, the number of plants they had. Well, now they're saying, well, maybe, maybe not only are we not going to do that, but maybe we're going to add some nuclear. We're going to start investing more. Um, and I, I just think that's, that's a, the very beginning of a, a giant new wave. And it's going to be a, a true nuclear renaissance because it's going to be proven to be, you know, the, the most superior baseload energy you can get. You get a lot of energy and all you need, you know, is a reaction based on this, very abundant mineral that we have it's, it's almost like a miracle that we just all take for granted as as josh wolf has, has recently said on twitter if, if we discovered you know nuclear power uh today we would just think it was a miracle and it was like it was the answer to the climate crisis like oh well all we got to do is you know use some cheap uranium here to to make a reaction and get a bunch of electricity so i i just think the future is really bright and i think Mostly, it's because there's going to be a significant ramp up in the amount of, of nuclear reactors around the world in the next, call it, 15 years. Yep. And, you know, when we were chatting on Twitter, you were sort of, I guess, highly convinced that, you know, uh, like very soon, say within, say, the next six months to a year, you know, we're going to see a shift in uh, public sentiment. So, you know, what, what do you think is going to change here that's going to actually cause public sentiment to become pro-Uranium? Because, you know, people usually bring up the old um, Uranium is dangerous or they bring up, you know, Three Mile Island and Fukushima and then um, they make the same arguments over and over again. So 
what do you, what do you think is actually going to cause public sentiment to change permanently this time? Uh, for one thing, the lights going out and the heat turning off that, that gets people's attention. So, you know, a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of, you know, policymakers, you know, maybe read a couple paragraphs in a magazine about nuclear and made up their mind. They didn't do their homework. Uh, Cause if you do your homework, in my opinion, it's really clear that it is very safe and obviously very effective. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, you know, the price angle that was, that was not crazy to say like, you know, five years ago, you're like, man, I don't really want to build, you know, a nuclear plant that costs tens of billions of dollars. Like that, that's fair. Whenever, you know, natural gas is $2. So I, I understood that angle that kind of made sense. That's changed. So price, price has a way of influencing people's ideas about things. Uh, and for whatever reason, the, the storage of, of waste is, is a big deal. I, I can't wrap my head around that because when I've studied it, it seems like it's not that big of a problem, but I, the biggest thing, you know, is I think this will at least force a lot of people that haven't actually done their homework to actually do their homework. And when they do, they're going to realize like, okay, this is way cheaper than what we're dealing with right now. It's way more reliable than what we're dealing with right now. We don't have to import it from, from Putin or, you know, from our neighbors or, you know, get it on an LNG ship that takes time, go across the water during, you know, crazy shipping, you know, era. Uh, So I think, you know, something that's cheap and reliable and safe, just it will eventually find its way to being used, uh, you know, on on a significant scale. And I I just think that's all lining itself up to inflect, especially if the winter, you know, energy crisis gets gets worse than it is now. And it's already really bad in Asia and and Europe. So, and but you're already seeing it, it change the sentiment and change policy around the world for nuclear. And I just think that is, you know, it's more and more as we go through the winter. Absolutely. I know you're not chase the energy guy, you're chase the macro guy. So I wanted to move on from energy. Talk a little bit about what the other thing that's sort of on people's minds, which is inflation. And number one, do you have any thoughts on, on the transitory nature of inflation? And do, do you have any, do you have any views on other commodities, say gold, silver, or even currencies like the U S dollar, uh, you know, based on, you know, that kind of thinking. Yeah. So as far as inflation goes, I, I've, you know, been writing about it being less transitory than, than it is expected for months now. And, and I think that's starting to play out. And, you know, I think we've seen metals tried to break out today. This is Friday. So far it's, it's kind of gotten knocked back. They're not really breaking out yet, but, but they're on the cusp. Uh, yields obviously have started to break out. And I think, in my opinion, the reason for that isn't because just headline inflation is high. Like headline inflation has been high for a while. But what we thought would happen was A, uh, once base effects wore, you know, kind of wore off, inflation would go away. Well, that, that's over. That was like four months ago, base effects went away and inflation is still really high. So I think everyone had to take a hard look at that and go, okay, well, you know, from that standpoint, it's not transitory. And then people were like, oh, well, it's just some prices. You know, it's just stuff because of the pandemic. It's just, well, at first it was lumber before it crashed. Well, now it's lumber again, I guess, but, you know, or just shipping costs or used cars, like whatever you want to point at. It was like, oh, it's just that stuff. Like the rest, everything else is fine. And that held water for a few months, but now that's breaking down. If you look at median inflation or you look at um, the Cleveland Fed's uh, 16% trimmed mean that that strips away the highest 8% and the lowest 8% of the inflation readings to get rid of the, the noise on both sides. And that is just ripping higher all of a sudden. So you see these inflation measures that measure kind of the middle, like the, the, the like everyday inflation that isn't extreme. 
the fact that that's starting to really move higher and with no base effects help, that to me, that's really significant. I think that's why you're seeing break-evens break out. That's why you're seeing yields back up. That's why you're seeing commodities kind of re-enter a, a significant bull market. Cyclicals starting to, you know, outpace defensives again. Yep. You, you kind of see all of that starting to, to work itself at the same time. And I, if you look at a chart of, you know, 10-year real yields, to me, it looks like that could rip lower to where you could have, you know, real yields more negative. And that's, that's where you can kind of see that breakout in gold, gold and silver kind of find some, some footing, at least for a while. Um, to your point, though, on FX, I, I, I'm really struggling with FX right now. So personally, I'm, I'm long Canadian dollar, Russian rubles, um, the Norwegian krona against uh, the euro, like basically a lot of energy exporting. Yep. Is, is, that's where I'm at, you know, FX wise right now. I especially like that, you know, um, the, the Norway Europe cross because one of them is a massive exporter of energy and one is a massive importer of energy. So not to go back into energy too hard, but I, I just think that that's a nice setup. But as far as the US dollar itself, I, I just be honest, like I, I don't have firm feelings. I, I think we should be in, you know, in the early innings of a, a, a like a multi-year decline in the dollar. But this energy thing, if you get, or, or really just a fiscal policy thing there's there's a lot of setups where the us outperforms on a growth uh, on growth versus asia and europe they call it the rest of the world essentially uh and so i mean if you have the lights going out and factories shutting down in europe and asia as we already have and obviously could get worse in the winter and the us is kind of the last man standing like sure we may have some outages too and our nat gas prices will get expensive too but just way less so and, and later than the rest of the world so if that happens you can easily see a scenario where the dollar can move substantially higher uh, just based on basic, you know, relative growth, relative yields. If, you know, if the Fed's starting to freak out a little bit and they, they're talking about raising rates, you know, first half or something uh, where in the ECB is just like, man, we're not, we're never raising again. Like, because, you know, we're having negative growth because we had to yep. shut down all of our plants. Like it's just really easy to see a nasty dollar scenario. Uh, and I think that's, that's something that people should really take seriously headed in the winter, especially for, you know, people like me, like, yeah, I'm, I'm really long. A lot of these commodities are going to, they're doing great, but if the dollar gets unruly enough, like that stuff starts to take pain. So that's why for me, the dollar is that's kind of my natural hedge because I'm typically long real assets. So instead of, you know, buying S and P puts, I, I I'd rather buy, you know, dollar futures. Yeah, that's, so, you know, you, talk, you sort of talked about, you know, the framework of U.S. versus the rest of the world. And do you, do you have any thoughts on emerging markets um, going forward? Number one, you know, some of them are probably going to get hit hard by, uh, you know, the coming energy crisis, um, considering that they tend to import a lot of energy. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, things like Brazil, EWZ, uh, the, uh, Brazil, the Brazil ETF, it's, 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 it's been coming down quite a bit. And, so, and you know, on, and uh, obviously not at say you know March two thousand twenty lows, but just generally speaking, do you have any thoughts on um, thoughts on emerging markets going forward? Yeah, so I very much right now break them out by you know energy and, and food imports exports, so basically where they stand with commodities, and I I want to like Brazil a lot more than than I do. I it's a great setup, but they need some political stabilization and. And right now, I mean, they, they can't raise rates fast enough to, to really catch up with inflation. So they're just in a weird spot at the moment. I, th I think you can get to a point in a few months where that's a great trade, but you got to wait for it to like actually turn. Uh, 
but I think, you know, I mean, they, they, had, they had weather problems that were a big deal for them because they're such a massive exporter of both energy and, and agriculture. And, and, you know, when you don't have enough rain that impacts both. So I, I think, I think that will kind of start to sort itself out this year. Um, they're They're going to get a lot more rain. They're about to, they're, it looks like they're getting a lot, you know, here short term, which will help with hydroelectricity. Yep. So you don't have to import as much LNG, things like that, as well as, you know, watering, you know, all those crops, that, that's going to be a, a big deal. Um, when I think about it, but there are some, just in my opinion, really big risks in, in emerging markets. Number one is Turkey, obviously. This, they have insane monetary policy. They're going to have, they could easily have food inflation above 50%, you know, in coming months. Uh, I, I just think that one can, can honestly get out of control. I've, I'm a perma bear on South Africa because I, I see just incredible political risk and, and just societal risk in that country. And obviously they import a lot of energy. So I, I think there are some scary spots that, you know, could, can work as shorts. Pakistan is another uh, big energy importer. Uh, that That's a big, big problem for them at, at the moment. Um, so yeah, there, there are some shorts in the end, but, but yeah, you look at places like Russia, uh, hopefully at some point Brazil and, uh, you, I think there's going to be some some pockets you can jump into in NEM that they can do well. Maybe Southeast Asia is a place where, you know, they, they can get on track as well. Yep. And, you know, going forward, uh, what's sort of the next big trade? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that's, uh, I guess that's a, a convoluted way of saying it, but you know, what sort of, what's, what's sort of on your mind in terms of, you know, trades going forward from, from this sure. point? So I'm, I'm, you know, the next big trade is always what I'm thinking about because you're always eventually going to have to move on from what you're doing. Uh, if, unless you're just buy and hold person ignoring markets, but obviously I'm not. So uh, for me, for me, two things uh, stick out. Agriculture uh, is, is, I think is going to, is going to take kind of take the baton from energy at some point. Uh, specifically, I think corn can have an unbelievable next 18 months, especially um, largely because of fertilizer, uh, disruptions due to natural gas prices and the other, th- the other thing is cannabis i uh i think cannabis is a really interesting setup and a really good setup and again this is this is this follows my framework of finding things that are unloved and and beaten down because it, it is right now it, it kind of had a nice little bubble that blew up we're down you know 50 percent from there uh which is exactly where i like to start digging in on trades and when you just kind of look at the fundamentals this is they're just all good it's a it's a high growth market. It is something that's gaining, you know, acceptability globally every day. Yep. It's, gain, it's gaining uh, kind of legal market share, if you will, every day globally. And, but there's still a lot of kind of, I would call them synthetic constraints all around cannabis. So they have to pay a fortune to borrow money uh, because it's viewed as risky. They can't actually bank, you know, in a, in a normal fashion in much of the world, including in the United States. Uh, that that all that kind of creates all this regulatory burden that I think will naturally kind of melt away o- over over the years at least. It, it just like all it, I just picture all that regulatory burden as a bunch of catalysts that are just built in. So if, if you picture like a, a timeline moving forward, you can just kind of picture little little catalysts that you you don't know where they're going to come on the timeline. You just know that they're going to come on the timeline where you know, all of a sudden they can, they can bank and they can, you know, import export differently. And not to mention the fact that, you know, young people 
might convince old people like hey this is actually okay it's not you know the, the devil's lettuce or whatever and so you just have a lot of a lot of different unique catalysts lining themselves up uh it's cheap a lot of these companies have just fantastic cash flows as, as it is um and they have to, and they're paying exorbitant amount to borrow money so eventually they'll pay you know a lot closer to just normal market rates to borrow money They'll be able to get normal financing. All, all that stuff will raise already high margins significantly. And I, I, I think all this stuff, you know, for call it three, five years from now is just is badly mispriced. Got it. And, and what do you see on what do you see on ags? Um, is, 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 is it sort of similar to the, the sort of a food shortage, uh, just like an energy shortage or? Yeah, essentially just supply and demand being, you know, a, a problem. We much like we got used to abundant supply of, of energy, we got really used to abundant supply of crops. We didn't have too many weather disruptions. We, you know, we had the US, you know, Argentina, Brazil, you name it, like just having really great crops year after year after year and expanding, you know, how many, how many acres they plant every year almost, yeah. it seems like. Uh, that is sort of, a lot of that's sort of naturally coming to an end. Uh, input cost for everything farmers do is getting more expensive. So obviously energy costs are getting more expensive. Fertilizer costs are truly going parabolic. And that is that is a significant portion of farmers' outlays uh, for what they do operationally. Um, of, of tires, tractors. I mean, John Deere workers are on strike right now. So I don't think tractors are going to get much cheaper. Yep. Uh, pe pesticides are going through the roof. So you can't really name an input cost for a farmer that isn't going up. Land, the actual farm land prices are going much higher. So if you get that combination, like you, you have to have higher prices for these people to keep planting as much as you need them to plant or they won't plant as much, you know? And so you get this situation where you get high prices and you win or you don't, and then you get a season where no one plants as much as they should. And then you get the high prices. So it's almost like you get high prices either way. Uh, and the downside risk is they don't pass along any of these costs, which is really difficult to imagine especially, you know, you look in the U.S. where we give out significant farm subsidies, but they're falling a lot year over year. So it's not like the government's going to just back them up for all the losses they're going to take. They just won't plant as much or they'll plant other crops, you know, different stuff. Um, that's why I like corn. I, I think you're, you're going to have a lot of people planting soybeans instead of corn because, you know, you, you need less nitrogen for nitrogen fertilizers for, you know, soybeans and corn. And nitrogen is just going nuts because it comes from natural gas. Um, but it's not just gonna be corn those can be other things like I, I like rice I like winter wheat and some of the stuff's for the weather I think weather's going to be more volatile than, than it has been recently moving forward and that is you know a big problem for for production uh, so it's, it's a combination of a lot of factors for the reasons I, I like agriculture but that kind of encapsulates most of it I, it was sort of a great overview of both the MSO trade as well as ags. And, you know, how do you determine trading timeframes that based on sort of this macro research? And also, how do you think about timing stuff? So, you know, for example, I know people who've been on uranium since 2017, for example, and, you know, it's, it's been cheap for years and, uh, you know, it's just sort of over this year and over 2020 that's actually gotten, you know, the love that it's, that it's supposed to get. So how do you think, as a number one, how do you think about, uh, trading timeframes as well as how do you, uh, as well as how do you think about timing these trades? Cause I know you use a lot of technical, so, you know, it would be interesting to sort of share that framework. 
Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the execution is all going to come, all comes down to technicals for me. Well, I shouldn't say all, mostly comes down to technicals for me. There's definitely always a fundamental overlay. That's usually more for after I get into the trade, uh, the, the fundamental part. Uh, but so, yeah, I'm looking for breakouts to actually enter. So, like right now, I, I just talked about cannabis and I told you how great it is. It's going to be a wonderful investment. I own zero shares of cannabis right now because I'm, I'm waiting for the price to tell me it's time to get in. Yep. Um, I don't always get that right. Trust me. I, you, you mentioned 2017 and uranium. I, well, I go back to 2016 with uranium. I've, I've just been slowly adding to uranium for five years. And yeah, you know, after four years of doing nothing, it finally started working. Um, so you, I wasted capital really for a while there. I just felt that strongly about the fundamentals. But um, the, some, sometimes, I mean, I'll do a trade that's very tactical that, that I don't feel like there's a lot of runway. Um, that's why I I separate two different like styles, two different portfolios. One's tactical, six months or less, and the other's you know strategic and, and longer than six months uh, because I want to trade at both speeds. Because some some trades they don't belong you know in one of those buckets. They only belong in one. And you, you should always know you know when you're entering something which bucket that's likely to be in. So obviously sometimes short term trades go long and on the opposite. But yep. understanding what is likely there is important and. A lot, of the, a lot of times this just comes down to fundamental runway. So this is why I like capital cycle investing. You look at oil and you can see the runway is still there because the CapEx hasn't come. Yep. So as far as how long I'm, I'm going to stay in or where I'm trying to get out, it, it, it's going to be based on that. Like whenever the supply response starts coming in and everyone's you know over their skis and positioning, all that kind of stuff, that's when I know it's time to move on, move on to something else. Um, and yeah, you manage the risk largely with technicals and, and just make sure you're refreshing your, your fundamental view, you know, constantly always red teaming what you think about a market and, and, and kind of going back to zero on it. And usually people wait to a big drawdown to go reassess their trade, but yeah, you should just be doing that constantly. hundred percent. And you know, how do you think about allocating? So you mentioned that you sort of run two different, uh, portfolios. One is tactical, the other is you know, strategic or positional. And how do you think about uh, how do you think about allocating within both those frameworks? Yeah, so I term bucket personally, and and then kind of have that more frequent trading on the tactical side as kind of like a 40 percent allocation, and try to use the profits from that to just basically feed into the longer term stuff that I have you know longer term conviction on. And there are some things I'm just always going to have in my portfolio. Like I'm, I'm just, I'm just always going to have some just basic, you know, equity, you know, exposure. I'm going to have some gold. I'm going to like, there are some things that are just always going to be in there for me, timber. Like I'm just always going to have some timber because it's, it's just different. It, it's, it, it's going to throw off some yield. The land value goes up, the trees grow and become worth more every year. Like I'm just always gonna have timber in my portfolio. So there are some things that are just kind of baked in the cake mm-hmm. and I'm always just going to kind of add to, and then there's other things that, you know, they're, I'm really long copper on a strategic basis. There's going to be a point where we produce too much copper and I'm not, I'm going to pull that completely out of my portfolio. Same with oil, like oil is going to reach a bubble at some point and we're going to try to produce too much and I'm going to have zero oil allocation left, you know? Yep. Yep. And, you know, sort of to wrap up the podcast, um, I wanted to ask you, if you had to give, you know, your top three tips for investors, what would they be? Or top three takeaways from sort of your career of investing, what would they be? And also, you know, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? I remember uh, <laughs> that was uh, that was on Twitter. So I had to uh, ask that. Yeah. So 
I mean, it's, it's hard for me to pick between two. So I've, I kind of have two favorites and it depends on the mood, mint chocolate chip and butter pecan. So it just, just depends on which way I'm feeling that day. But that was, that was one of my favorite questions I saw too. Um, as far as like some takeaways, I, I think people are always looking for super shortcut, easy tricks. And, and it's usually like around the way they execute or some like little signal or indicator it's stuff that everyone's doing. I, to, to me, like one very basic way to, to try to gain an edge is, is to understand at a fundamental basis cycles and a lot of different cycles. And then, and then human, human beings and, and the way we, the way we kind of extrapolate, I, it, it's just such, it's just in our nature to extrapolate and almost always you can find. So at any given moment, I think you could, you could jot down five things that you think are being extrapolated and then go research those five things and figure out, oh, oh wow, like we're extrapolating, you know, this thing in the future and that's wrong. Yep. And so if, if you can just basically counter trade against false extrapolations, you can, you can always find, find good investments in the market because as human beings, this is a fundamental flaw we have. Um, so don't ignore the playing the player aspect of markets and, and realize that there's there's money to be made just fading extrapolations and again you, you got to wait for the inflections and and the technicals to line up and you got to make sure the fundamentals are real and they, they can hold all that stuff um but that's something i, I, I don't see enough people like you know ha- having inside their framework they're they're too busy you know tearing up a balance sheet or finding a fraud or um you know just trying to just trying to bang their head against the market you know just because of their personal feelings or, or something like I, I yep. there, there's, a, there's a lot of underlying trends uh, based on, on the, the deep fallibility of human beings that you could find in markets. Awesome. And, you know, with that, I think that's a great place to, uh, that's a great place to leave off. And now, before I let you go, could you sort of give the audience, you know, where they can find you and your work? Yeah, sure. So you can find me on Twitter at Pinecone macro. Uh, we have a website, that's pineconemacro.com and we're about to roll out a brand new website here in the next uh, week or two hopefully and that's so that's going to be a significant upgrade over over the website we have right now so that'll, that'll be nice look out for that um and people can email me directly at chase at pineconemacro.com if they want to reach out that way awesome chase thank you so much for being on the podcast it's great having you yeah pleasure to be back thank you for listening to market champions To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.